Hi, I'm Jenny Wood, writer of Flutter and A Boy Like Me. And I'm listening to Adrian Has Issues because Adrian has issues and I do too. Hey everybody, this is Adrian Has Issues, a conversational podcast celebrating the culture of creativity, and I am speaking with one of my favorite people to talk to, not even just even in comics, but in general, and Aww. no, it's it's an honest truth, and I know that sounds like super ass kissy, but I'm not even lying, because she's wonderful. Yeah, but I've known you for years, so it's like, can you kiss somebody's ass for that long? <laughs> I mean, I know some people like to play the long game, that's not me, but... <laughs> Oh my gosh, it has been years. It has been many, many years. Great, now I'm going to actually try to like count, because it's been at least what? Because actually, I met you even before this podcast started. Yeah, you had another podcast at the time. Right. And, oh, I don't know. Now I have to look up when the AT movie came out. Okay, that's right. <laughs> I love that that's our frame of reference. Okay, so the AT movie came out in 2010. Wait, has it really been that long? Apparently, Bradley Cooper and the A-Team, it was 2010. Holy crap, because that's right, because I think <laughs> I met you, yeah, that's right, because I think we met at Comic-Con, like, yeah. holy shit, so does meeting you predate both podcasts? I don't know, well, no, because you did have a podcast, but I remember I did a promo for the other podcast, and then after the, like, a year or two later, then you said, oh, I've got a new podcast, and we were talking, and, I, and Eileen was still in school at the time, and um, she and I were talking about nutritional stuff. Then you said, oh, I'm going to do a new podcast. Can you do a new promo? And I said, of course. But yeah, the AT movie came out in 2010. And that's kind of like our, <laughs> our baseline. Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember I started the other podcast around 2013. So I know, completely derailing your introduction to talk about how long we've known each other. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's been about that long. And it's wild because... Now taking like a mental inventory of how long I've known people. Yeah, time needs to stop moving. I mean, it's great that after all this time, we're still able to kind of get together and chat. And the fact that you're willing to take the time from recuperating because you're just coming off of your Comic-Con weekend to talk to me. So I'm super honored. I will always take time for you guys. We I remember like a year ago or two years ago, we had that great conversation about Frangelico and, and Mrs. Butterworth. Yes. And every time I look at that <laughs> bottle, I was like, you know what? It was worth all of the pain because I still don't know how old that bottle is. <laughs> that, that, that bottle's been like passed down from generation to generation. <laughs> right? <laughs> that bottle could tell some stories. <laughs> but my God, like, I mean, and that's kind of funny that you should mention the passage of time. Since I've known you, I mean, even before that, your work in comics has been pretty extensive. And I love that every time I have you on, the list of books to mention gets longer. <laughs> At some point, I'm going to have to like run out of room. Like That may be a whole other podcast, but I think that's probably like the coolest compliment because you know, you're always working on something new. You've always got plates spinning. And I think that's just really remarkable that in a time that at least I've known you, just watching your work grow has been like nothing short of remarkable. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. I mean, people, I think people think that making comics and working comics is easy because, quote, everyone can do it. And it's funny because 
I find that after every big show, like in New York or San Diego, you meet people who aren't in the comic business but want to try and get into it. And they sort of come with these starry eyes and, you know, oh, well, I've got this great story and I'd like to hire you to adapt it and this and the next thing. And when you sit down and you explain to them really what goes into it and, you know, what the process is and also, you know, how, you know, you have to go through editorial and you have to sort of, for lack of a better term, audition artists and see which artist has the right style for the theme of the book and for the genre of the book. You can't just sort of pick anybody and they sort of, you start like listing all the things they sort of look at you like, whoa, this is a lot harder than I thought. And it's like, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's funny books and it's enjoyable to create, but it is work. Absolutely. And, and definitely if anyone is listening and is not aware, Erica Schultz works, works her <laughs> ass off. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and you know, what helps having a mortgage or a car note. <laughs> <laughs> I think somebody was telling me it was John Romita Jr. made some comment about like someone asked, like, how do you never miss a deadline? He's like, well, you get a house and you get a car and you have some kids and uh, you'll never miss a deadline because those kids (laughs) got to eat. The roof got to stay over your head. You know, like that's how you never miss a deadline. You get responsibilities. I do want to mention these books because they're fantastic. All right, let's see, M3, 12 Devils Dancing, and uh, matter of fact, we've spoke about those in great length on your other appearances. Please listen to those, because they're fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Xena, Warrior Princess, Charmed, Swords of Sorrow. Um, One of my favorites was your um, Daredevil, and it was was the annual, correct? Yeah, it was annual number one for 2018. At that point, I'm like, all right, who do I got to talk to to get Erica to write a Misty Night ongoing? I've... (sighs) My God, the amount of time I've, I've pitched Daughters of the Dragon. I've pitched Misty Solo. I had like, I, I wanted to do Daughters of the Dragon in space. So basically like sword. Cause at one point Misty and Colleen were, were finding bail jumpers. So right. I wanted to be, they would be doing like intergalactic bail jumpers. So sword brings them in to sort of hunt down these people and things like that, or these aliens rather. And then this way they could interact with like silver surfer and beta ray bill and all these great cosmic characters and the guardians of the galaxy and stuff. I think it might've been a little too out there. No, who would not pick that up? I thought it was great because the most important thing about Misty and Colleen is that for the most part, they're really like street level. So right. to bring them into an environment that, is so fundamentally different and then to see how that tests them i think is is very interesting it's an interesting narrative right and i think that actually would work given that they're in a completely different environment i feel like their pretty much just level of awesomeness wouldn't really change much it'd be like how would the rest of the universe deal with them exactly we'll see if it ever happens marvel knows my number So um, I'm just going to leave that there, but absolutely hire Erica. Matter of fact, the one book that I believe as of now, it's been released, Forgotten Home from Vice Press, which is a part of the Comixology Originals line. Mm -hmm. Holy crap. (laughs) I hope that's a good holy crap. No, that was a great holy crap. I'm going to try my best not to talk about the book like in super great length, because obviously I want people to pick it up and not spoil it for them. 
But this book did something great, and I remember reading the first issue and the cover, which um, actually I should mention that the covers are done by uh, Natasha Altrichi and, well, let's see, arts by Marika Cresta, colors by Matt Emmons, letters by Cardinal Ray, and um, actually Yesileala and Kevin Marr also contribute to the book as well. But I was looking at the cover... I thought it was a really cool choice because I'm looking at the missing posters and I'm looking at the officer and I'm not really paying attention to the hands in the pockets. And to me, like it completely just went past me. So now I'm reading this as like a detective story, you know, about looking for missing kids. But then once like that, so that twist happens, I'm like, oh, okay, this is now this is happening. It's like, okay, you already had me, but now I'm glued in. But before I start, like, ranting and raving about how good this is, um, I figured I'll kick it back to you and let everybody know, like, what the book is about. Well, I mean, there there is a magical element about the book. And sort of the, the short, you know, logline is Lorraine Adelaide is a sheriff's deputy who is investigating children abductions in Montana. And the one thing that all the uh, abduction crime scenes have in common is that there's magic. There's residual magic. And we learn that Lorraine actually is not human. She comes from another world where she has magic. And she uses her abilities in our world to solve crimes. And um, the title Forgotten Home refers to her journey having left her home and realizing that the magic is from her home. So she kind of has to go back. And she left under very complicated circumstances so it's not going to be a nice, uh, it's not going to be like a, hey, welcome back, Lorraine. It's, uh, it's a little contentious. Issue number two really gets into that. I kind of like this book for numerous reasons. But one of them, I thought it was a cool callback to some of your other works that you've done and things that you've been interested in. It did remind me a little bit of M3. Um, mm. But then throwing like the magic element into it. I just thought was like, okay, this is sort of the best of both worlds. You know me, and you always know that I always like to talk about the inspiration and how these stories kind of came about. So please let me know, like, what was sort of the impetus of writing the story? When the movie Frozen came out and everyone was singing that song constantly and don't say the words of it because (laughs) it's like a trigger. It's like the 1-800-CARS-FOR-KIDS. So everyone was singing that. And I, I have no kids. I, I don't have, you know, I'm sure it was a great movie, but I had no intention of seeing it. And so I, um, I kind of made a joke and I was like, I want to come up with the anti-frozen. So I, I sort of started, you know, thinking about two sisters who hated each other and in this magical world. And that story sort of spun off into another story that I'm hoping to develop very soon. But there were a couple of little bits of it that, sort of were the seeds for Forgotten Home. And then I started saying, okay, well, I like this little aspect originally. Mm -hmm. Let's let's try and build this up more. And originally, it wasn't going to happen. We weren't going to bring the magic in until the end of the first issue. Like, that was going to be the big reveal at the end of the first issue. But my husband, who lovingly reads everything that I do to sort of help, um, you know, give it fresh eyes, said, you know, I really think you should bring the magic in earlier. And treat it like it's just normal. This is just a normal part of her life. Obviously, magic is different for people like you or me. But for Lorraine, this is her. This is a part of her skill set that she uses. And so I did. So I brought it in even earlier, so much so that it's within the first five pages, and it was in the pitch. 
And uh, a lot of people who had read it were like, whoa, I totally did not see that coming, but it's awesome. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it worked. Thank you, honey. You gave me great advice <laughs> kind of thing. Well, shout out to your husband, by the way, and well, just partners in general, because I know normally Eileen would be here with us chatting with you, but thank God that they are who they are, because I mean, I'm pretty sure, I'm glad someone's there to give that outsider's perspective and be like, you know what, I think this would work, and at the same time, they're right, um, yeah. even though I don't always say that in front of Eileen, which I probably should. <laughs> Tell her she's right more. I'm sure she'll appreciate it. Oh, she's right <laughs> most of the time, but I'm too much of a proud jerk sometimes. <laughs> but you know what it is? I mean, as creators, we tend to get so close to a project and we can't see the forest of the trees. You know, we, we'll fight over the minutia of like three words in a word balloon, but we'll completely lose, you know, something else. And that's, you know, that's why you have people read work before it goes out. That's why you have editors and, and you uh, run it past your friends and stuff, because you sort of need to take a break from it. You need to, to take a step back. Right. Because you can get so wrapped up in it that you get blinded by it. You go snow blind, really. And also, I mean, definitely having someone else read it, but definitely someone who you know is going to give you the right kind of feedback mm -hmm. and no disrespect to anyone that I know personally or anything, but you know, there's people that you'll kick ideas to and of course they'll be super supportive and that's great. But sometimes you also need to, someone to tell you, it's like, you know what, this idea, not that it necessarily sucks, but you know, maybe it's like, Hey, this is maybe how it could work a little bit better. You know, at least more constructive feedback and kind of yeah. like in, in a positive way, sort of break things down and kind of help you really understand it, which is super important in that process. Absolutely. And, you know, I always say that there are a lot of really good ideas, but they have poor executions. And you have to be able to figure out, okay, this is, this is the idea. How am I going to create the best story out of the idea? And one right. of the things that I talk about, um, I'm teaching at the Kubert School now, and one of the things that I talk about with the students is that, you know, there's a difference between story and plot. The story is basically, you know, like the story of Rocky is, you know, washed up. Nobody decides that he's going to try and make something of himself in the boxing ring. The plot is, you know, he's this guy from Philadelphia and he's friends with Paulie and, you know, he meets Mick and, and Adrian and like the, all the, the little puzzle pieces of it. So you can do a story about a washed up nobody who wants to make it big. I mean, that's, that's the quote story of a million different movies and books and stuff, Right. but it's the specific execution that makes it rocky. And this is tough. I know because as you know, you talk to storytellers and wanting to do like new ideas and fresh ideas, reinventing the wheel may be a little tough, but sometimes even with the overall story, like, you know, the underdog there are certain tweaks you could do to it that will give it like its own unique perspective. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, there's a book that basically says this, there's, you know, there's basically seven stories that are told throughout history and it's in, and, and any story told will fit into one of these seven categories. And that could be right or that could be wrong. But the whole point is, is that what makes each of these stories unique or what makes each story within these categories unique is the execution. You know, the underdog story, yes. So, I mean, Star Wars is even an underdog story. You take a, a kid from a moisture farm on an outer rim planet, and he ends up taking down the Empire. That's an underdog story. You know what I mean? You almost kind of forget that it's almost that simple originally. <laughs> yeah. 
And that could be for the first movie or over the arc of, of that first original trilogy, because ultimately they take down the empire again and again. It's funny because as I'm writing my own stuff, because for my students, I have to break things down and I have to look at things in a different way to teach them to do so. I'm actually looking at my own writing in a different way now. So it's, it's been educational for me as well. Right. And that's um, something I actually had in my notes that I wanted to talk to you about. Mm -hmm. And not even just Forgotten Home, which, of course, we'll always come back to. But since the last time we spoke, uh, you've now taken on a role as an instructor. Yeah. uh, Which I think is a really cool idea. But ultimately, I just really wanted to pick your brain. And like you just said, now you're having to break these down and explain it to other people who maybe aren't as experienced with this sort of regimen of writing. So how has that been for you? It's been interesting. Um, a lot of times I do things on autopilot. Right. And I think, and I think we all do that things that we're, that we feel that we're good at and we're skilled at. We just sort of go. It's, it's kind of like an instinct, but we have to train ourselves for it to be an instinct. It's not, it's not something we're born with, or maybe it is. I mean, it sort of depends on the person. It's been interesting having to look at stories. And one thing I, I mean, Basically, my classes are just, we're just, we just talk about stories. We talk about what makes stories interesting, what makes them fun, what makes them entertaining. We talk about the emotional connection that the audience has with the story and how that makes a story uh, popular. We talk about what makes something popular. You know, you can look at a movie and, you know, it makes a hundred million dollars or $200 million or whatever, Mm -hmm. a a significant amount of money. So it's, it's financially successful, but is it a good story? Right. And we've seen that tons of times over the years. Um, And that's kind of that argument where we talk about, uh, maybe I shouldn't use an actual example, but I'm going to anyway, because I'm terrible. <laughs> um, a matter of fact, I mean, the step kid, we were talking about Skyscraper, uh, uh-huh. the one with Dwayne Johnson. Mm-hmm. That movie did very well, especially overseas. But yet, the more we talk about that movie, it's like, wow, this was probably, um, this could have been a lot better. Is I'll basically be very nice about it and just say oh. it could have been a lot better than what we got. And I think what made that movie kind of hurt wasn't so much that it was just always bad for the sake of being bad, but you could kind of see, you know, talking about plot, the plot points, you know, were so blatant where we can kind of say, all right, you know, this part's going to be a thing. This is going to be a thing. And I think I kind of did that thing where I just started sort of picking it apart. Not for me, oh, I could have done better, but it definitely felt like it was rushed. Yeah. But yet, in talking about that movie, and I'm sure a lot of people bring it up, it's like, oh, but it did all this money at the box office. But that just means that this many people went to go see this movie and spend as much money on it. But when you walk out of the theater, what were the thought process? You know, what were going through people's heads? Did they actually enjoy themselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's important because you want to create things that people are going to enjoy. Right. There are a lot of comics that people think are the pinnacle of literature and I've read some of them and agreed and I've read others and I am like, you know what? I, I don't see where you get that impression, but Hey, you know, different strokes kind of thing. Right. And I never begrudge anybody for liking or disliking something. We all have our own preferences. Some people like don't like Westerns or some people don't like, you know, war movies or war stories and things like that. So I don't begrudge anybody for liking or disliking something, but I think that any story can benefit 
from sort of having just like a, a quick read from somebody else before it just goes to press, because it's always good to hear reactions from people. It's always good to, to hear another side of it. Because when you're writing and you're creating something, you don't always, you only have your singular vision. And that sometimes can get corrupted by, you know, this sort of mania that creators get into this idea of like, I has to get it done, I have to get it done kind of thing. I mean, I always reference um, the movie Amadeus, where, uh, uh, yeah, is it Mozart? I think it's Mozart. Yeah, I think it's Mozart. That's yeah. sad, I should know that. Like, I grew up on a damn movie. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like he's sort of sitting there uh, composing, and his wife is just sort of like putting a piece of toast under him to be like, you have to eat kind of thing. We, we get into that sort of manic mm-hmm. um, um, mode where all we do is want to create and want to create, want to create. And sometimes it's great and sometimes it's garbage, but we don't know it's garbage because we're not stopping to look. Right. Um, so I, I try to teach the students there that, you know, putting fun things in stories and sort of pop culture references are great if they serve the story. Just putting in a pop culture reference for the sake of a pop culture reference is lazy and a waste. You know, um, there's a lot of, like you were talking about skyscraper. I haven't seen skyscraper, but there are plenty of other really big budget action movies with these huge set pieces and explosions and all kinds of stuff. And a lot of times the story really isn't there, but it's kind of masked with these frenetic camera moves and explosions and, you know, war scenes and stuff to sort of fill in plot holes because it's just, Hey, we want you to just look at this, this mournfully waving American flag as the camera shakes (laughs) and, 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 you know, a robot is transforming into something, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) It's not an indictment of Michael Bay. And it's not a secret that I dislike the Transformers movies. (laughs) We've spoken about this before. Right. In this context, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, look, not for anything. Michael Bay is on budget, on time, and he makes the studios a ton of money, so they keep hiring him. Good for him. Is he an auteur director who tells a good story? Eh, I would. Put, did he do The Rock, or was that Jerry just Jerry Bruckheimer? I think that was. I think that was both of them, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Well, if he did The Rock, then that was probably his best film like ever. And then after that, it just you know. Once he got into robots and turtles. Yeah, though I did have a soft spot for bad boys. I don't know. But I think that was just definitely just more of a Will Smith thing. I'll, I'll give you bad boys. I didn't know he directed bad boys. Okay. A lot of people didn't. I mean, I people know that he did the second one. But the first one, I think, was right around a time when Michael Bay wasn't just quite a household name. Like, he did a couple of high-profile movies. And you start to see sort of like where his style starts to develop, but it's before you can watch a movie and go, oh yeah, it's definitely Michael Bay. Now I got to look it up. Okay. Because he's produced a lot of movies. That's why I'm wondering if it's just like, did he, okay, so so director. All right, let's see. Uh, He directed Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was good. Okay, I'll give him that. Okay, yeah, he directed Bad Boys 2. So yes, I will give him Bad Boys and Bad Boys 2, and I will give him Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, and The Rock. Yeah, what is that to that? Oh, I guess mostly Transformers. Yeah. Uh, apparently he did. Okay. So. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh oh. All right. So we've got The Rock and then Aerosmith falling in love is hard on the knees, a video. 
Then we have Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, Faith Hills, uh, There You'll Be, a video. What? Bad Boys 2. Then wait, it gets better. The Lionel Richie Collection. Wait. Wait a minute. Time out. Yes. What? Apparently, the Lionel Richie Collection video documentary, the video was Do It To Me in 2003. I now have to look this up, and I'm definitely going to have to post it on the show notes because... I am still trying to think of like 2000s era Michael Bay directing music videos and is like Lionel Richie like diving over counters, like shooting things. Or... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the dude clearly, I mean, I used to think that the guy was like superhuman because as a child, I didn't realize that, you know, the video for Dancing on a Ceiling was a camera trick. So I was like, you know what? Not for nothing. That'll be his move. He's on the ceiling where he's like running on the walls, like shooting at things. Now I need to see this movie. Um, <laughs> well, you know, um, he did do 13 hours, which I thought was decent, which is the uh, story about the soldiers at Benghazi. Okay. I was, I always get that confused with, um, 127 hours about, um, oh, the climber the, that cut his arm get, off. Cut his own arm off. He did the island. Let's see. Is that the one with Scarlett Johansson? Was it? Ugh. I honestly forgot. And this is the funniest, maybe this isn't funny, um, I guess it's more peculiar, that in that entire movie, I could not tell you what happens, but I'll always remember Michael Clark Duncan's cameo. Because <laughs> in the, like, maybe total of three minutes he's in that movie, he gives such a, like, fantastic performance. I'll never forget that scene where... You know, I guess they use him as a selling point because he was like this football player that got hurt or whatever. And yeah. I just remember him in a facility where he's like running and screaming because he's like terrified of whatever's happening. And it's like heart wrenching. And he does more in like that sequence of him running and screaming did like McGregor or Johansson did in like two and a half hours. In my mind, it was kind of like it was almost like it was trying to be a different kind of Logan's run. Right. But I don't know. It was weird. And then after the island, it started the Transformers stuff. So then you have Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen, Dark of the Moon. Then that movie Pain and Gain with The Rock. Then Age of Extinction. Then 13 Hours. Then Last Night. And apparently a new movie has just been announced called, I'm not making this up, Robopocalypse. Wasn't that like one of those movies from like the studio that made Sharknado? Drew Goddard wrote the screenplay and Daniel H. Wilson wrote the novel. It's a novel? Yeah, because when I Google Robopocalypse, the novel comes up, which uh, maybe I shouldn't speak ill because I haven't read it and I don't even necessarily know the author. But that name, it just evokes all of these B-movie ideas in my head. But I don't know, maybe the book's pretty good. I have to check this out now. Okay, so this is the plot line from, from IMDb. Okay. In a futuristic world where computer minds and robots are in everyday life. I, I have like the perfect movie voice for this now. Oh, okay, hold on, wait. Now we're going to sell this. All right, here we go. In a futuristic world where computer minds and robots are in everyday life, mankind finally creates the first mass intelligence computer brain. Archos escapes from captivity with the intent of preserving life and the world, even if this means wiping out the human race in order to do so. The story follows the events of several characters as they form the human resistance and fight back against Big Rob and the machines. Don't 
Dun, dun, dun. Okay, um, I'm pretty sure you just described the Terminator. <laughs> um, I don't know, like I said, maybe the book sets the story up a lot differently. And we were just talking about how, like, maybe the story concept is a little rope, but maybe the executions where it gets, like, really good. But, I mean, you know what? How about it's the robots leading a resistance against the humans? Oh, oh, we have that. Um, it was a movie uh, on Netflix, and Michael Pena was in it. Oh, I think I know which one you're talking about, and I didn't see that because um, there's a bunch of stuff, Mikey, that I haven't seen. <laughs> That was that was a movie that the robots did leave the resistance, lead a resistance against humans. Yeah, because, I mean, there's pretty stories where the robots are like, look, we didn't ask to be created. And, you know, I mean, there's some of us that are jerks, but for the most part, we're like doing our robot thing. And then the, the, the humans are like, oh, um, there's too many of them. We need to take them out. I was like, no, I want to live my synthetic life. Leave me alone. That's basically what I tell my mom every time she gets angry at me. I didn't I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask to be created. <laughs> Are you a robot as well? Probably. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, in the world that we're currently living in, I don't know if, if anything is real anymore. Yeah, and I wish I could laugh at that, but it is not remotely yeah. funny. Exactly. Good exactly. lord. Great googly moogly. <laughs> I personally used to think about like robot uprisings and be terrified. Like, my God, like my toaster could murder me one day. And honestly, these days, I'm like, you know what? We had a good run. <laughs> I have been waiting for the big EMP or for something fabulously insane to happen for a very long time. And I'm very upset that it hasn't happened yet. But at least with robots, you know, for a fact, for the most part, it'd be logic based. Like, no hard feelings. It's not about hate. Just, you know. Humans are garbage. Yeah. Like, speaking about, like, efficiency, like, you guys just aren't this good at this job. We're going to try it. We're going to do it. Yeah, and, and I totally get that. And I don't begrudge robots for being like, look, first of all, your skin is really, really tender and really soft. And if you think about it, sharks have been saying this for years because a lot of shark attacks aren't because sharks are trying to attack people. They're like, because they think we're seals and we're just <laughs> a little too delicate for them. I actually made a joke about this in the Hawk Girl story that I did with Sunny Lou back in uh, 2016. She's talking about an intergalactic arms dealer, and she says, I don't understand why they, you know, why would they would be on Earth? Most, you know, arms dealers stay away from Earth because humans are kind of delicate. Like, we are. We are pretty delicate. We really are. I mean, our skin is so thin, like, the tiniest thing. Can, I watch kittens and, and puppies, like, play fighting and thinking, oh, my God, they're hurting each other. <laughs> no, man, they got that. They're, they're okay. <laughs> Because they're, they've got like, you know, evolution has been kind to them. Evolution has not been kind to us. <laughs> I think, I think evolution, I think they gave us a big brain or quote unquote big brain because deep down we are so delicate. Like bears are bigger and stronger and faster than we are. So the only right? thing we got is, oh, well, maybe we can climb that tree. No, bears can climb trees too. <laughs> Right? You know? Your average slip and fall can pretty much take out a person. Exactly. And that's the exactly. thing that's just wild to me. And it's just, maybe that's just me. And I don't know, oh, my God. Now I'm just like psychoanalyzing myself. But like, <laughs> I just think about this one day. What if like the, the floor is wet? Any wrong twist, I could either snap something. I can bang my head on something. And that would be it. Yeah. Bye bye, Adrian. It, it's over. <laughs> yeah. And it's pretty nuts. And, you know, I. 
it's it's tough to say it, but think about all the things that are going on with you know between politics and the climate and everything. Obviously, humans are not good for the earth. No, like the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And I'm thinking animals outnumber us, so maybe we're not so good being around. So mass extinction isn't doesn't sound so bad when it's mass extinction extinction of humans. Maybe that's okay. Here we go. And you can use this idea if you want. Well, now that I'm saying this on a podcast, well, instead of it being robots, it'll be like woodland creatures. Like, I don't okay. know, a swarm of squirrels will like level an entire village or something. <laughs> Wasn't that what the happening was about? The wind was getting back at us or something? Yeah. And that's like, that's such a cool concept, but then. It, it wasn't <laughs> good idea poor execution that's what i'm saying there, and this is why we need you like this <laughs> everybody go to one of erica's classes learn yourself something so that way you don't make another happening do you want the happening part two no cupid school and that's going to be your commercial right there <laughs> there's a i think he's making a new movie yeah he's back like after um crap what was the one he just did um i guess it was a glass and the one before that um split I actually really liked Split. I thought Split was very well done. Glass, I thought wasn't as well done, but I saw it. I watched it and I thought it was interesting. The whole thing at the end with the mom was kind of weird, but you know, whatever. But yeah, he's back. He's he's back at it. So hey, you know what? Second chances, I guess. I, I just remember I was at um, South Street Seaport a million years ago. And I was waiting to meet somebody. I think it was me. I was waiting to meet one of our friends for dinner and I turn and I look and he was just there, but it was like, it was like something out of his movie in the sense that like, he literally was like, just there as opposed to like, I turn, I turn, I turn again and like, <laughs> and I was like, whoa. And I just kind of like looked at him and I think he looked at me like, oh, is this person going to like chase me down and ask for an autograph or something? And I was just like, gave him like the, hey, like head nod, kind of like, I'm, I'm totally cool. And then he's just like, hey. And then he just <laughs> sort of walked away. Like, he's like, I'm not going to make this weird. I'm going to acknowledge that you're there, but I don't want to leave an opening for you to come over. Exactly. It's like, I'm not going to make this weird. And I'm like, I'm totally not going to make this weird. Is it weird? It might be weird. Okay, let's just, it's its getting weird. <laughs> See, now that's a great iceberg of stories. Like, today I stared down in my Shyamalan. <laughs> Dear Diary, today I stared down M. Night Shyamalan <laughs> at the South Street Seaport while waiting for Lauren and Ryan to go to the pub. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> See, that's how you know you've made it. When you could stare down prolific directors. I didn't mean to stare him down. He just happened to be there, and I just happened to be there, too. So I'm, I'm sure he's used to it, because it's not like, again, I think if you approach them, like, I mean, I don't know, like, the actual distance necessarily, but maybe it was, like, that distance where, okay, you would have had to walk, like, a, a certain amount of spaces before you actually get close enough to him to say anything, and maybe that's what it was. Because if you're too close, it's awkward, but if you're also too far, it's also awkward. Yeah, I know. Well, they always talk about, you know, you hold when you hold the door for somebody, <laughs> they're not there yet. And then they have to like jog to come up to the door. This way you don't look, in, look like an idiot just standing there holding a door open randomly. Well, I'm notorious for that because sometimes I'll just sense that someone's behind me and just open it. And then it's like this. I feel so bad. Like it was like this elderly person. They were so sweet. But we were there for a minute, and I'm not making fun of them necessarily, but I'm like, I could have waited a little bit before they got up there, but it got to a point where it was awkward. They were just like, you know what? You could just close it. Like, I'm sorry. This is mean. <laughs> like, I didn't mean to. I was trying to be nice, and I somehow still screwed up. 
You know, you know what they say: no good deed goes unpunished. Absolutely. Oh that, my god, that's what it is. This is Robopocalypse is really a thing. Yeah, it's legit. Like it's not just. I thought it was like a, a mystery science, you know, three thousand kind of thing, but apparently, like it's. Do you remember Ro- Robojocks? We might have talked about this before. Oh yes, we did talk about that, but I have not yet seen it. Okay, it's from it's with the guy who was from the. Um, he's he's basically like Steven Tyler and um and Mick Jagger's love child, and he was on, uh, what you call it? He was on Alien Nation. Oh, that guy, um, Gary Graham. Yes, is he not like seriously? You've seen him. Is he not? Steven Tyler and uh, Mick Jagger's love child. If he's not a love child, he definitely was a, a, a like a cloned experiment. Like at some point, <laughs> they knew that the Rolling Stones would like kick off, and they're like, "Look, we're gonna try to replicate you, so that way you're always around." Well, you know, I mean, Mick Jagger had heart issues, and he was like back like that. I, you know, I wish I had Mick Jagger like his genes because he's like ridiculous. But yeah, because in the movie. Alienation. It was James Caan who played Sykes, and oh god, I'm dating myself so badly from Alienation. I remember that show. I like that show. Oh, I love that show, and I still remember the very special episode when um his partner gave birth. Yes. As a kid, that just blew my mind, and I'm like, "What? This is nuts! Why are we watching this?" And it's the dudes who have to breastfeed. This is mind boggling, and it's like, why was this show still not on the air? Why is it not in its like 70th season? I want to do Alienation Comics now. There you go. Now I got to find out who would have the license. That's a good question. I mean, someone has to. I mean, granted, I say that now and watch them like remake it. Well, then you know that important people are listening to your podcast. No, because you know what it is. I know. Well, they tried it with um, what was the other movie, Bright? But it was like the it was like an orc or something. Yeah, that was kind of weird though. Like Bright was weird because it had this whole like fairy thing. And stuff like that. So that was kind of kind of strange because there were like orcs and fairies and all kind of like extra, you know, almost like fantasy creatures. It was almost like what you call it, like a, a like a mean Shrek. Yeah, like a lot more problematic version of Shrek. Yes, a much more problematic version. All right, Robopocalypse. When that comes out, you may have to come on and talk about it because <laughs> that ticket's already sold. Crap. <laughs> that would be awesome. Oh my gosh, I know we're going like a ways back though. We, we're going a ways back. You know, people are going to be like, what's alienation? And then you're going to say, have you lived under a rock your entire life? Apparently, yes. Get on that shit. So for anyone who is not aware, alienation, simple plot. Like, imagine leave the weapon except... um With aliens. Who breastfeeds and also gives birth to babies. My favorite, though, was that I used to read Starlog magazine. And they used to have like awesome articles about alienate i mean obviously like star trek and stuff and star wars and stuff like that as well but they also used to have awesome articles on alienation and i remember reading Starlog magazine with my mom and being like oh my god the new season's coming out and like reading stuff about it i might even have a tv guide somewhere that did that did like a cover story on alienation somewhere in a box somewhere no you want to talk about dating oneself I was um, just getting ready to leave the um, house, just doing errands uh, the other day. And for some reason, I don't know what it was, but I was just thinking back and I realized, you know what? I've lived a very strange childhood <laughs> in terms of pop. I mean, that's just true. Just my family in general. But hey, mom and dad. Um, but just in terms of like the pop culture that I consumed as a kid, 
Because on one end, they're like, there's these two pivotal moments in like my television life where one of them was the episode of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers where Tommy got cloned, so the Green Ranger and the White Ranger were fighting each other. And then the episode of Melrose Place where Kimberly blew up the apartment complex. <laughs> and I was like, what? Kid from Patterson, New Jersey is excited about the season finale of Melrose Place where one of the like ex-girlfriends, if I think it was like Billy or somebody, <laughs> turns into like this serial killer and blows up her apartment complex. That was so weird. Like so utterly bizarre. Oh my god. I remember my sister loved Beverly Hill. I haven't watched the new one. I wasn't really into the first one, but my sister loved the the original Beverly Hills. Have you watched the new one? No, not I tried to like no wait. Because they redid it, like, what, twice already so far? Okay, so they did Beverly Hills 90210 with a new cast, and some of the original cast members were teachers at, was it Beverly Hills High or whatever it is. Oh, God, they really did New Mutants Academy with that. They absolutely did New Mutants Academy. So that was the first thing. And the second time they did it now, they're doing it like a mock reality show. What? Where the actors are playing themselves. It's really, really weird. And like Brian Austin Green is ma- in real life is married to Megan Fox, but Megan Fox is not on the show. So there's another actress not playing Megan Fox, but playing Brian Austin Green's wife. The, uh, this is already too complicated and I hate it. <laughs> They're doing too much. What is this? I don't know. I don't. None of it makes sense. But it's so batshit insane, now I'm going to have to see. See, that's how they get you. Because you're like, oh, they're going to bring it back now to tour. No, but it's like, no, it's like a meta sequel. Yeah, it's so weird. I don't I don't get it. I don't, I don't get, get it either. But like, not a tour, no, like I did watch and I enjoyed it. Same with Saved by the Bell. But none of those shows are in Melrose Place where halfway through like season two or three, they're like, you know what? Forget this daytime soap stuff. We're just going to essentially just make this like a precursor to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> That was that was when they went sorry just went fucking nuts. Sorry, I didn't mean to curse. That's when they. No, you can totally curse on the show. I know, but I'm trying to get better. I curse in front of in front of the students, and like I feel bad sometimes. Even though it's like, look, we're all adults. We can drop some f bombs, but right. I mean, oh, I mean, unless it was like you're teaching like five year olds, which I mean, it'd still be kind of hilarious. But <sighs> you sh- you should hear some of the things that I stupidly say in front of my eight year old godson. Um, <laughs> that. <laughs> It's it's funny, you say things like that, and then you look at him, and you know that he's absorbing it, and you're like, but don't you ever say that, or at least don't say it in front of your mom, and if you do say it in front of mo- your mom, don't tell her you learned it from me. That's basically been, like, my entire experience as a parent <laughs> so far. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> oh my gosh, but, um, but not for nothing, though, I figured, at least with your students, you're the kind of teacher I would want to have, where you're like, you know what? You're fair, though, but I'm, I'm not going to get away with anything. Like, she's definitely going to give me some shit. I'm not going, like, the... What was the name of that movie? I'm not going the whiplash route. Ooh, that's a reference. I definitely want them to learn, and I want them... And I and I want them to know that if they're going to fail or they're going to fumble, I want it to be in the classroom with me in a safe environment rather than in a, a boardroom and, you know, lose the lose a potential job. Right. You know, and so I say to them, I've been very open and saying, look, I know I'm hard on you, but I'm hard on you because 
any career in creative arts, whether it's commercial art, like advertising or anything like that, it is difficult. And you're going to have to have some thick skin and you're going to have to, you know, present things and you're going to have to get out of your comfort zone significantly. And I would rather you sort of have those growing pains with me in the safety, for lack of a better term, of, of a classroom, right? rather than being in sort of like a, a make or break situation where you're going for a job interview, or you're going for a freelance gig or something like that, you know, learn what to do, what not to do with me. Let me be the discerning, you know, person and teach you what to do rather than you make the mistakes and you never get hired by, you know, Scholastic or Random House or, you know, fill in the blank company. Right. And that's something that I've always appreciated is the fact that you've always been very no nonsense and you can have fun and enjoyment of what you do, but the work is still the work. And when it's time to get down to business, you know, that's it. You do business. And I think that they're very fortunate to have someone give them that because I think sometimes I always think about the teachers that I had growing up who, you know, it's like we had fun in our class, but did we really learn anything? And I always think about like my sixth grade teacher who she was someone who really like cultivated like my writing. And once she kind of figured out that that's where I went, like I never could get anything past her as far as any doing essays or short stories, like the red ink would just spill all over the page and I used to hate it. And I'm like, she says she's, you know, you know, fond of me and likes what I'm doing. So why is she like such a tough case with this? And then years later realizing now I can actually deal with it a little bit better. And I've always appreciated those instructors, maybe not at the time, but eventually you come around and you're like, okay. You look at those, those instructors with a new set of eyes, right? But with a more mature set of eyes. That's usually what happens because you know, in the moment, you know, even, even at our age, and I'm a couple of years older than you, but I mean, even at our age, we look back on situations that happened when we were, you know, younger and we're like, at the time it was, oh, that was the greatest thing in the world. And then I think of it now and I'm like, wow, I did some of the stupidest stuff and I'm really, really lucky that nothing serious happened. Absolutely. You know, and you kind of think to yourself, like, what were you thinking, you moron? <laughs> and there's also that too where i think sometimes like those great teachers in my life intentionally just didn't even bother saying anything because they just wanted to know how long it would take for me to catch up yeah. like you know what i could point out the fact that you screwed up but you know what you won't learn anything yeah these students are teaching class from someone who pretty much has like a winter soldier jacket you don't <laughs> want to mess with that person yes my winter it's funny because i walked into one class i was substitute teaching and i walked into class and everybody's like i love your winter soldier jacket i said it first i was like please please i was like stop kissing my ass because you know i'm only substituting like i'm not you know really gonna have your grade so you know kiss the other teacher's ass not mine it's not gonna <laughs> matter it's not gonna matter <laughs> they just need a warm body to teach you a lesson for a day <laughs> and is that not very like worker soldiery? It's like, you know what? It that's perfect. Oh my gosh, you really are like the anti-substitute teacher. I'm like, look, I know I'm not necessarily gonna grade you, but I'm not gonna sit there and let you like run up the walls. You know what would be awesome though? Now I want to do like a fanfic of Bucky as like a substitute teacher. <laughs> yes. Do you remember that movie, The Substitute with Tom Berenger? Or the movie The Principal with with Jim Belushi? There you go. That's a deep dive. You know, I'm going to count lean on me on that as well. Yeah. Like this great genre of principals and authority figures in schools just like kicking ass. Yeah. Then it got weird when he did like the Treat Williams movies where he's like John McClane, but in high school. That was so, I don't know. I never got that. 
Like, why treat Williams? How do you go from Tom Berenger to treat Williams? Like, what are we doing, Hollywood? Well, you know what? It's probably, they probably couldn't afford Tom Berenger anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Berenger's like, this is beneath me. Yeah, treat Williams. Oh my God, that's a deep dive right there. Wasn't he playing the exact same character? I'm sorry. It, there's no world where I'm going to confuse Tom Berenger and treat Williams. But you know what? Not everybody's as discerning as we are. You know, not everybody, like, really thinks... Oh yeah, this is you know Tom Berenger. This is Treat Williams. You know people are just like I'm gonna just, just pick an old white dude. Like there's so many movies that like come out that I literally say it's like white dude with a gun. You know old white <laughs> man with a gun. Like no offense to uh, to Liam Neeson, but pretty much every movie he's made in the last ten years is old white man with a gun. Right. And it's the same thing with um, most of the Kevin Costner movies. Old white dude with a gun. Wait, time out. Time the hell out. Uh oh. Sasha Mitchell, Cody from Step by Step, did the substitute? Apparently. What is this? Was he one of like the gang members? Wait a minute, time out. Okay. Is this the same substitute? Oh wait, class of nineteen ninety-nine. The substitute is the subtitle. Okay, I was gonna say, like, there's no way that's the same series. It was like I think it was like three movies. Yeah, okay. God, really treat Williams. That's that's one. I think I'm pretty sure that's the point where if people have stayed on this long, that's when they hit the stop button. And they're like, who in the hell is Treat Williams? If they watch White Collar, which was one of my favorite series, and I to this day will say that Matt Bomer would have been the best Gambit because Neil Caffrey was basically Gambit. <laughs> um, you know what I think happened? I think that the people who had watched Magic Mike and said, you know who would be awesome? for Gambit is that guy from Magic Mike. And they're like, yeah. And they thought it was Channing Tatum. Channing Tater Tots. (laughs) (laughs) I know his last name is Tatum and I'm sorry. I'm sure he's a really kind guy. Hi, Channing Tatum. I apologize, but I refer to you as Tater Tots because of your last name. And I'm sorry. Not like you will ever meet me. No offense, Adrian. I doubt he's going to be listening to this podcast. But if he is, I'm just apologizing right now. (laughs) That might end up being the episode title because my God, that's amazing. Channing Tater Tots. There you go. We always come up with like the like the Ballad of Grey Booker, right? Who still follows me on Twitter, and every once in a while, I'll get a DM from. Ah. Well, I told you she's a sweetheart, and she's still gorgeous, and I probably still have a crush on her. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I think that that's what happened. I think they thought get the guy from Magic Mike, and they thought it was Channing Tatum versus the actual real dude who should have been Gambit. Oh, that movie's never going to get made, though. That movie's never coming out. No, I think that's pretty much dead in the water. Like, we're lucky if the New Mutants comes out, which, mm, sorry, as a New Mutants, like, junkie, I'm okay with that one, like, ending up in development hell or going straight to video. Really? I personally think it would be great as a series. Like, put that, like, on a Hulu or maybe, like, a streaming service where they can kind of not get, like, super dark, but, like, they can actually get into the characters a little bit. I mean, Disney owns Fox now. Why not do a Disney Plus series? Just as good. Yeah, because I just think that that's a story and a group of characters that would work great in a serialized format. It could be uh, Marvel's answer to Riverdale. Yeah. And I would totally be down for that. Oh, that would be. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Marvel's answer to Riverdale. That is a really good way of thinking of it. All right, that's it. So um, when somehow we both, well, I'll get recruited by Marvel. So that way they're like, okay, we yeah. heard your show. We loved your idea. And it's like, well, the only one condition, no. If I'm here, then Erica's got to come in. Oh, okay. 
That's and it. that way you can write Daughters of the Dragon Space. <laughs> and then I can do the New Mutants. And I'm like, I've never written anything. It's like, well, that's why I'm going to go to Erica Schultz class and learn real quick. And then I'll come back. We'll have Space Dragon. Right? Again, who <laughs> doesn't want Space Dragons? Look, zombies are cool. Robots are cool. Robot zombies are cool. <laughs> space Dragons. We don't have enough of those. Well, we did Space Lobsters. Claire Connolly and I did Space Lobsters for our Kickstarter earlier this year called Strange Tales. We did a story about lobsters in space. That is right. Yeah. Well, shout out to Claire Connolly, by the way. Claire is awesome. Claire's the best. I'm, I'm so lucky. Every time I send her somebody right, she's like, all right. Like she's just down to do anything. Like we already talked about like doing an X-Men parody with Octopus, the Octmen. We've talked about like I I, I you might have seen this on Twitter. I made a joke about the whole baby shark thing. Yes. And I said, you know what would be awesome is if we did like a baby shark behind the music and he's like divorced three times. Like, has, like, 37 children, <laughs> child support payments. He's, like, a raging alcoholic. <laughs> it's like, you know, he was Baby Shark, and he was on top of the world, but now. <laughs> but now. Look, now, look where Baby Shark is, you know? Uh, oh, my yeah. God. I, that is amazing. That would be so, so strange. But that, And I mentioned it to Claire at New York Comic Con, and she's just like, I'd be down for it. I was like, of course, because, like, you know, if you have never checked out Claire's original work of her own, it um, definitely go to ClaireConnellyComics.com. She's got some amazing zines. She teases everybody that she's an indie darling. She really is an indie darling, and she's an amazing storyteller, and she's got so many fantastic stories. Um, the Forgotten King, uh, Onions Make Me Cry, Spaceman. Uh, really, she's she's really great. So I can't promote her work enough because she's actually I'm having her come and talk to one of my classes later in the year to talk about independent comics making and getting your work out there and just, you know, just creating, just saying, screw it. I'm just going to create what I want to read. And this is the story that I'm going to tell. And I love that mentality. And I think that's really cool, because like I always say, if the person creating it isn't into it, what's the point? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you have to create what you want to read. You have to create what you find interesting. And that's really what Claire does. I mean, she has a lot of very uh, existential things and she's very, she gets very deep. It really is incredible. And her storytelling is just, I mean, I always talk about this sequence in, in The Forgotten King where the hunter pulls back his bow and it reminds me so much of David Aja's Hawkeye where you see like the pulling back of the bow in almost like an animated sense, like right. sliver pants. And she does that too. And then, you know, the bow, you know, the arrow is loosed and you see the arrow going and then the arrow impacting the tree and then the shatter of the, of the arrow. And I mean, it's, she's such an incredible sequential storyteller. She really, really is. And I can't say enough good things about her. And her sister Paige is another great artist. She does a lot of uh, book illustrations. Paige oh, is cool. fantastic as well. Um, and they're twins, so. What? Wait, Claire's a twin? You didn't know Claire and Paige were twins? No, I never You just thought they together. looked a lot alike? <laughs> I actually did not, and I'm saying this completely honestly, and feel free to laugh at me, because it did not dawn on me until just now. <laughs> Paige, I think, is like is like an inch shorter, but yeah, Paige and Claire are twins. They're not identical twins, so don't, so don't worry, but they are twins. I don't know, my brain's a bowl of mush. It's okay. Well, you got kids, so that's why. Exactly. Because you, you got kids, you got to chase after. I got a, I got a fat cat I chase after, and that's that's about it. Oh, I love Simon, though. 
I know. We love him too. He's happy because uh, Eric Burnham of uh, Transformers, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Ghostbusters fame uh, was crashing with us. And Liana Kangas of She Said Destroy and Black as Fuck fame was crashing with us. And Simon was like, why are there so many people in the house? <laughs> so everybody oh. left this morning. The house is now just me and AJ again. And uh, Simon is like, um, is it safe to come out now? I was like, good, because I can't, I can't keep feeding you under the bed. It's gross. <laughs> I love you, but it's gross. Like, you have to come out and eat your food. No, I won't. Oh, my gosh. See, and that's what I love, Simon, kindred spirit. <laughs> You you crawl under the bed to eat your lunch too. Is that <laughs> I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to have, have a conversation with Eileen. I mean, you're gonna have to have a lot of conversations with her about me, but that's par for the course. Yeah, I know. I'm gonna get some random texts like Erica, it's Eileen. Call me. We have to talk. <laughs> Be like, really? Is he under the bed eating again? Like, yes, always. <laughs> if you're eating out of a small metal bowl, then that's just weird. Uh, I don't know. Different strokes, different folks. I guess. True. Are you doing anything fun for Halloween with the kids? I'm bad at planning things. Like, I, I'll figure it out eventually. <laughs> I know that um, I didn't know what I was going to do for Halloween because last year I, uh, I I manned the door and I was in a uh, full shark outfit. Like it was basically a head to toe onesie, like a gray onesie with like a tail attached to the back and like a fin <laughs> attached to the back. And like top part was like a hood, but it looked like a shark's mouth. So like my head was inside a shark's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, I don't want to do that again. Like, I don't want to be like the shark lady on the block. But I have this amazing... <laughs> God forbid. God forbid. I have this amazing custom-made Captain America jacket that I had made, like, God, it's going on 10 years ago from uh, Enzo Volante Designs. He's He now has this giant booth at New York Comic Con. Like, fucking superstar. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you remember me? And he's like, of course I remember you. You were like the first jacket I made. So I have this amazing custom Captain America jacket, and my husband made a good point. He's like, why don't you just do your Captain America, wear your jacket, wear some cargo pants, your boots, and put a bowl inside your the Captain America helmet, and that's the kid's got to take the candy out of the bowl. I was like, oh, that's a good idea. That is fantastic. So, yeah, he comes up with good ideas on, on occasion. <laughs> Marrying me was probably the best one he came up with, or the worst, depending on which side you, you look at. <laughs> I'm sure there are mornings that he's like, this is the greatest idea ever, best wife. And then there are mornings like, Jesus Christmas, what the hell was I thinking? This woman is nuts. <laughs> Space lobsters? What? <laughs> Space lobsters and butter bad guys? If you haven't read the book, uh, audience, it really is. It is about space lobsters and their arch nemesis, which are sentient sticks of butter. And to be able to craft that story and make it as good as it was, that's how you know you're an effective storyteller. <laughs> Yeah, I try selling that at, at New York Comic Con. What's this book about? Space lobsters. Uh, sure. Why not? That should be the easiest sell. I'm like, why not? I'm putting like little tags now on it. Like, if you like Criminal Minds, try Twelve Devils Dancing. If you like The Punisher, try M3. If you like batshit stories about animals, try Strange Tales. There you go. Oh my gosh, Erica, so glad to be able to chat with you again. You know, you're probably still recovering, but to take an hour to talk to me about ridiculous movies, as always. And I realized, wow, that 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 pretty much is our hook, isn't it? Yeah, that's all we talk about. We always have this weird encyclopedic knowledge of, like, movies that I think maybe three people have seen. But you know what? That's our thing. Like, that's kind of, like, our thing. Like, we, we talk about weird movies that 
five people have seen, and it's fine. But I got to plug Forgotten Home again. I do. Please, by all means. Okay, well, Forgotten Home is available on Comixology. It's a Comixology Originals. It's available if you have Comixology Unlimited or Kindle Unlimited. You already have it for free. If not, it's $2.99 for the first issue. It is a monthly series. It came out on October 2nd. It has amazing artwork by Marika Cresta. And uh, Matt Emmons does the colors. Natasha Altarici does the covers. And uh, Yazel Ayala did a lot of fashion design for it. Uh, Kevin Maher had um, done the logo. I write it, Cardinal Ray Letters. It is uh, urban fantasy. It has love and hate and family drama and magic and all kinds of really cool stuff. The second issue will be out next month. It's a monthly series and it goes eight issues. So I really, I'm stretching myself on this one, which is why I really hope everybody likes it. I still have to finish writing the script for, for issue number six. I'm really proud of this book and uh, I'm really proud of the team. So I hope people like it. That'll do it for this episode of Adrian Has Issues and we will see you next issue. For more great podcasts, visit AdrianHasIssues.com.